0: Well, there sure has to be a better way of slicing bread. (laughs) We're starting a new series this morning about our giving to God and to talk about a better way of giving. Clearly, as folks who turn up and worship Sunday by Sunday, you've got a heart for God. At least you're seeking Him in some fashion. Part of the game plan, just as we take up offerings week by week, is that we worship Him with what we present to Him. So it's not just our voices and song, but also from our wealth, and in the way we volunteer and work together, our talent. I mean, when you hear a band like this performing Sunday after Sunday so tight, with such great voices and musicianship, it's fantastic. These guys take their gifts and present them, use them, prepare together, work together. They are on time. Service sheets are put together by a group of folks here called their, Well, they call now the A-Team. You could join the A-team of a morning if you've got a morning to spare and put all everything together for the services. Just the design work of all that we do. It's just amazing. So giving is a part of all that, whether it's time or talent or wealth people we're connected to, opportunities that we want to pass on. I think it would be about two to three decades ago, I don't know if he's still operating, there was an African-American comedian by the name of Flip Wilson. And one of his shticks each week was to mimic, take off, a black preacher... And he had it down. I had some friends who could really, African-American, really, you know, just the way the preacher walked. He, he had it all down. And Flip Wilson, and this was a big show week after week, kind of a black Saturday night live. He didn't have the church lady, he had the church preacher. And he took it off. And the, one address was about, one of his deals was to mimic the preacher trying to get the church to give money now i'm english and can barely speak your kind of american let alone african american american but i'm going to give it a shot to imitate flip wilson okay come on, come on. now you're responding like a real congregation you're getting into this so he said before this church can walk, it's got to crawl. The congregation came back. Let it, let it crawl, Rev, let it crawl. And then he said, before this church can run, it's got to walk. And they all came back. Let it walk, Rev, let it walk. And then he said, before this church can accelerate and run and sprint forward into our future, it's got to give. And the congregation came back, let it crawl, let it crawl. (laughs) We don't make any bones about giving, being a part of worship and our lives. But the problem often is motivation. What motivates you? You There's a comment. Paul wrote two chapters about giving to the church in Corinth. In this particular point he makes is this, that each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's uh, chapter 9, verse 8. Now, just to give out of obligation, like legalistically, which is the way the contemporaries of Paul and Jesus did, their tithe was 10%, and they would tithe everything down to the mint, the herbs, everything. That was their deal, and it was legalistic, and they did it out of obligation to the law. Paul now, with a different sentiment at work, says, look, we don't give out of that kind of obligation. We don't giving out of compulsion or obligation just because we have to. And by contrast, this is the beginning of chapter 8 in First Corinthians, he describes the giving of these people up in Macedonia. Macedonia is still there and they are rugged people. They're kind of mountain people, warrior people. They are tough guys. But Paul went there and preached. The impact was this. Now, brothers, I want you to know about the grace of, that God has given the Macedonian churches. These are just little gatherings of people, not buildings like this. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Now how do you get to that? Under severe trial reckoning you're living living in poverty, and out of that, because they're giving corporately to this mission that Paul's describing here, they plead for the privilege of giving, and they give joyfully and generously. How does that happen? How do you get turned around? Because I know we, as ordinary human beings have been raised from the get-go pretty much because of our sinful human instincts to be the center of our world. And we try to take into our world everything that we think we need to make our world happy or comfortable or enjoyable or secure or give us dignity. It becomes all about us. And we use our resources to exaggerate, bolster, make ourselves feel good about ourselves. In fact, one of the reasons for giving is sometimes you want to feel good about yourself. You want to look good in front of some other people. That's a bad reason to be, that's a bad motivation. That's what we call hypocrisy. It's all about show. And Jesus pointed those kind of people out. How do you get that heartfelt generosity joyfully, to plead for the privilege of being invested in the work of the Lord. How does that happen? How do you get that motivation? Well, in another place, later in this same chapter, chapter 8 and verse 9, listen to these words. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you... Through his poverty, might become rich. So, just as Jamie was describing what Jesus has done for you, Paul goes back to Jesus leaving glory, leaving power, leaving adulation. Everybody loved him in heaven, worshipped him, cheered for him, praised him. God Almighty. And he became a human being, born in poverty, in a stable. You know the story, we're headed toward Christmas. We'll be there before you know it. Bear in mind, the angels did turn up. Glory in the highest, they sang. Because of the birth of Jesus in poverty. But the way the scriptures put it here, he became poor so that we might become rich. Set aside everything that was glory and honor and power so that we might be lifted out of our poverty, our misery. The wreckage of our lives put back together, given dignity, stood on our feet, given a mission. With it, the Spirit of God, which generates joy and energy. How did that Let Jesus do that for us and we not respond with absolute surrender to all that we have. Give it all to him for him to use however. See, some of the motivations that we have are good. Like, for instance, to want to be a part of something significant and make a strategic investment of our resources in some kingdom work of the Lord Jesus. So we support things like the silver ring thing here, going after kids and sexual abstinence, Urban Impact Foundation, different ministries like Young Lives. We're invested. We're about to really invest in the Dominican Republic. You'll hear more and more about that. That will be a major investment, like we have a major investment in urban impact on the north side. Strategically to invest and make a difference that is more than just a handout, but generational lift to change a culture. That's a great way to give. That's good motivation. But there's a better one. There's also the motivation that when you see somebody in need, so whether it's on television, you get a newsletter, maybe a friend you know, a family near you, somebody who's really in need. I mean, the need is screaming at you, and you feel like you need to meet that need in some way, some small way even. You endeavor to meet that need. That's good motivation. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a better motivation. It's to give out of grateful love for what God has done for us. So from what Pastor Jamie did as he led us into that scripture which we're going to turn to right now in Luke chapter 7. The woman who comes in on a party thrown for Jesus, but she is some lady. She's a prostitute. That is, somebody who has sold themselves sexually, given sexual favors for payment. One guy after another guy after another guy. She's the tramp of the town. Everybody knows who she is. And she turns up at a party thrown for Jesus. Now, as Jamie read that, and you sort of had your eyes closed and maybe were able to imagine what you were hearing, this Pharisee invites Jesus. Verse 39 of Luke chapter 7. Pharisee who had invited him saw this, this display of this woman's affection, and he said, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Everybody knew. But the Pharisee was about being, and for those of you who don't know that word, you may hear it now and then because it's another word for hypocrite. The Pharisees were a religious sect within Judaism. And they were the devoted ones. uh, It's like ISIS is a sect within Islam. That's a very violent illustration. But they think they're the real warriors of the movement. They're trying to clean up the rest of Islam and not just get rid of the rest of us. The Pharisees thought they were the perfect Jews. So they kept all the rules down to the minutiae you know, if you go to Israel today, on their Sabbath, this shows you the kind of minutia that's being passed down. When you go to a, hel- to a hotel, they've got an elevator that's their Sabbath elevator. It stops on every floor without you pressing a button. Because to press a button is to work. So you get on the Gentile elevator because you can press number 17 and go to the 17th floor without stopping at the first 16. Down to that kind of nitpicky rules and regulations about how to express righteousness, how to be perfect in God's eyes. That was the Pharisee. And he invites Jesus in. Now, they speculate as to why Jesus got invited by this particular chap to have to have a party thrown for him. For sure, almost for sure, it wasn't because he had high regard for Jesus. We'll come to that. It might be because Jesus was a celebrity and he wanted to have the celebrity in and then find out something faulty about the celebrity, sucker him him in, and then find some fault. That's the most likely. Because that's the way it unfolds. Another thing you need to know culturally is this. That when somebody like this man who gets named later on, a real person, Simon he's called, this isn't Simon Peter, Simon who's the fisherman, this is Simon a Pharisee, common name. It's a very common name in England, by the way. I have a son-in-law, Simon. In any case, this Pharisee, in inviting in Jesus and throwing that party, accepted the cultural norm that other people would come to that party not to eat the food, not to get talking to the people, but to watch what was going on. And they would stand around or even sit around the edges of the gathering. Sounds strange to us. But that was real. So this lady turns up with the others who've come to watch. Except she didn't come to watch. She came for one purpose only. To see Jesus. So you knew about him too. And it's hard to know, given her response to being with Jesus, because what's described is that she comes and kneels at his feet. Now that leads me to tell you one other thing culturally, that when they ate, they reclined to eat. So they would would be on the floor or on a low bench, on a couch, sometimes if they're really wealthy, on a couch, and they lean on their left elbow and eat with their right hand, and their feet would be stretched out away from the table or away from the food. So when it says this woman came up behind Jesus and knelt at his feet, he was reclining with his head and shoulders and so on toward the food, leaning to eat with his right hand, and she came up behind him. And knelt down at his feet. Now, first thing, everybody knew who she was and what she was. What's she doing here would have been the question. And then, in kneeling at Jesus' feet, the guest of honor, she starts weeping on them, floods of tears going down on his feet. And then she lets her hair drop down on his feet and starts drying his feet with her hair. Again, culturally, a woman always had her hair tied up. Except for her husband. And she would let her hair down for those intimate moments. This woman lets her hair down in public over the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet and then she kisses his feet. And then she takes what really was like her little nugget, her savings, this, this ointment, and pours it on his feet. There's a similar incident later in the life of Jesus, actually the night before he was betrayed, somewhere in that period of time, A woman pours oil over his head. And Judas is so indignant, he said, could not that oil, that perfume, that nard, have been sold and the money given to feed the poor? Judas the traitor said that. It was a wealthy, expensive item carried in this alabaster box which she poured on the feet of Jesus, extravagance. She's throwing away virtually her life savings. And Mr. Simon the Pharisee is indignant. But his conclusion is this, and you can imagine what he was trying to sort out in his mind, seeing a prostitute approach Jesus, weep at his feet, drop her hair down on his feet, pour out this ointment on his feet and kiss his feet. What on earth was going on here? Whether she was offering herself sexually, what was going on? Have you ever had, guys, have you ever had a woman throw herself at you? You don't have to stand up and tell us all about it, I'm just asking you. I have. When I was young and cool and irreverent, <laughs> yeah. Imagine what would happen if that had been in public. What is he up to? How'd that happen? Has he got a relationship with her already? But one thing was clear to the Pharisee, Mr. Self-Righteous Simon. Jesus could not be a holy man. He could not be a prophet because if he were, he would know what kind of woman this is who is touching him and he would reject that. He would reject her. And so you didn't have to be a mind reader. Jesus says to him, let me ask you a couple of questions here. Simon, And he asked him, by telling a story about two people, this is what Jamie read, Pastor Jamie, about two people who owed money to a moneylender. One owned, in real terms, about a year's salary, and the other owed maybe a month or two's salary. And the moneylender, because neither of them could pay back forgave them both their debt. And then he asks the question, having set the scenario, which of those two would love the money lender the most? Said Simon, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. And said Jesus, you got it right. You have it Right. And this woman, who's been forgiven much, loves much. And in, by implication, you who feel like you've been forgiven little, you love very little. And I tell you this, dear friends, it's very easy for us. I'm there, for, for us to fall into the pattern that forgiveness comes with just a cheap word of asking. We prayed asking God to forgive us. Pastor Jamie pronounced some kind of benediction of forgiveness. You know what Shakespeare said? He said, To err is human, to forgive is divine. We're sinners, and God's a good forgiver. It's our job to sin and it's his to forgive is the implication. That's his business to forgive, ours to be the screwed up people we are. And we take it for granted that God forgives. Let me ask you, have you been forgiven much? Do you really feel and know that? Because that's how Jesus positions the woman as one who has been forgiven much, and therefore she loves much and therefore what she is doing is not in any sense to buy forgiveness It's to express the joy of being forgiven whoever is forgiven much loves much the loving doesn't do the buying the love is an expression of gratitude for being forgiven that's the motivation she came in front of those people Took obviously all their nasty stares. What on earth's she doing here? Kind of attitude. And as she moved in on Jesus, it was clear she was there for one person only for him. And she goes down at his feet and weeps. Have we wept over the stuff we've done? Have you ever to weep? Maybe you don't think you've been that bad. But whoever is forgiven much loves much, I'll tell you that, because Jesus said so. When my brother, who held off Jesus for over 20 years, we were both about the same age, virtually twins, what we call Irish twins in England, virtually twins. We popped out of the womb, bang, bang, one after the other, about 18 months apart. We never knew a time when we didn't have each other. My brother said to me, when I got to know Jesus, I felt like I lost you. When I, John, got to know Jesus, I felt like, he, Tony speaking, I lost you. Because I had other interests and other passions and gave my time differently and began to live my life differently, talk differently And he resisted Jesus, and he did so for 20 years, got married, had kids, had a successful business. But one day God spoke to him as he's reading a New Testament that we gave to him. He's reading it, and he hears God say, Jesus is my son and your Savior. And when he heard that, he looked around to see if his kids or his wife had heard it no response but he knew he had he said I went upstairs and wept for the wasted years he wept he realized that Jesus was for real. this was all real and the way he'd spent his life for those 20 years since he first heard the gospel from me he counted as wasted and it broke his heart he lived 20 years of life for something other than Jesus. And now Jesus had come and gotten a hold of him, and he surrendered his life to Jesus. And I tell you, he immediately within the year started adding on to his big new home to take in foster children. And I met some of them when I would go and visit him. One night a week, he ended up going down into the city of London in a really rough part of London where the drunks and the street people were hanging out, and every city has that place where that stuff's happening, and they'd go in and get their free nights bedding and uh, food, and Tony would go and spend a night, one night a week with them to care for them and help share the love of Jesus with them. His life changed radically. In his business, he told the guys, no more swearing. It was his business. My brother's was as tall as I am but built and they laughed at him because he swore more than any of them the English have a way of putting swear words together which is really humorous I mean they roll off three or four at a time Tony was a master at it he said there's going to be no more swearing they thought he was joking they laughed at him and then he his temper got better off him he said I mean it no more swearing they thought he'd gone mad His life took a complete about turn. His life became used up for Jesus in every respect. The night, my last night with him, he died of a heart attack. We were visiting, and the last night together, we were supposed to be a part of a big gathering in London to celebrate the birthday of a pretty impressive guy, and we were supposed to be there, but Kathy and I said, let's spend this night, it was our last night before we flew back to the USA, let's spend it with Tony and Chris, Chris being the wife. We did. During that evening, my brother Tony, who was, after he became a follower of Jesus, worshipped in a service at a church, not too dissimilar to this, where it was all praise music. So he didn't know all the old hymns. And then he got his hands on an old hymn book. And he found one hymn that he thought was so fantastic, he memorized it. And he said to me, where we're kind of going around the house together, we're getting packed up, getting our stuff put together, and he's sort of following around and we're chatting, and he has got. He said, this is fantastic. And he holds up, holds up an old hymn book. He said, this is fantastic. And then he says, listen to this he didn't read it, he had it memorized, he said. And can it be? He read like nearly Flip Wilson doing his thing. He, he, he read it like it was meant something. He said, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused him pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that he would give his life for me. He said, isn't that amazing? I didn't say, oh yeah, I know the music to that, let me sing it to you, that's an old hymn. (laughs) That would have degraded, what that that would have killed the moment. I just said to him, that is amazing, because it is. But he's just quoting an old hymn written by Charles Wesley centuries ago. But he got it. When he wept for the wasted years and he understood what Christ had done for him, and he starts memorizing that as poetry and quoting it back to me with the passion that it deserves, given what's being said like that beautiful song sung right before we came up here how can it be that I should gain from his reward similar sentence sentiment rather is that how you think about Jesus is that how grateful you are the only adequate response is that of the woman you give everything to him doesn't mean you give it all to the church, but you give it to him. That's the motivation for all response, is what he has done for us, what he has given to us, what he has won for us. That's the motivation. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these moments together. Thank you for your presence here. For us to draw close to you as that woman drew close to you and sense your awesome power, your amazing love, your immeasurable graciousness. You are here for us one by one. So we come to you one by one. throw ourselves down at your feet. And if not weeping with real tears on the inside lament, not just our sinfulness, but our ingratitude for your forgiveness. How we just take and use your name, even when we sing it, not to love you, to sing great things that you've done for us, but do it it almost as wrote. O Lord, help us to surrender all to you. All to Jesus, I surrender. In your own heart, say to Jesus, Dear Jesus, Please, Lord, forgive me the wasted years, the wasted time, the wasted giftedness. How we have abused the salvation we enjoy. Forgive us, Lord. How we abuse you, taking you so for granted. Even to have a chip on Your our shoulders because you have not done what we think you should have done for us. Lord, have mercy on us. Speak forgiveness to us. And may we who have been forgiven much love you much. Thank you, Lord Jesus.